Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to the New Books in History podcast. My name is Christoph Odinitz. I am your host. And today I'm speaking with Larry Wolf, author of The Singing Turk, Ottoman Power and Operatic Emotions on the European Stage from the Siege of Vienna to the Age of Napoleon. Professor Wolf is a silver professor and professor of history uh, at New York University and director of the Mediterranean Studies there. He's also the author of Inventing Eastern Europe, of Child Abuse in Freud's Vienna, of Venice and the Slavs, of The Idea of Galicia, and of Paulina's Innocence Child Abuse in Casanova's, uh, in Casanova's Venice. So if I'm counting correctly, uh, Dr. Wolf, this is your, your sixth book, perhaps. And tell us a bit about, tell us a bit about uh, The Singing Turk and what, what led you to write it and, and what, it, what, what the book is. It emerged from the contemporary moment and contemporary discussions about Turkey's relation to Europe. Um, the discussion some 10, 15 years ago about even the possibility of Turkish, Turkish accession to the European Union, the thinking through Turkey's relation to the European Union. And um, I was interested in addressing that a little bit from a historical and cultural point of view. A lot of my work has, as, as, you, as you know, as you mentioned, has been connected to relations between East and West in Europe, especially during the 18th century. And I've um, used theatrical texts and musical points of reference in the past, and I've always wanted to try to do a larger study that was based on theatrical and musical issues for thinking about connections between East and West. And that's how I came to write The Singing Turk. And so the uh, the Ottoman Empire in this in this long 18th century that you describe is is in a in a sort of a transitional transitional period. It's not quite the Turkish menace that we remember from the 16th century until the the Battle of Lepanto, and it's not quite the the sick old man or sorry the sick man of Europe in his terminal decline that we know from the later period. What, what how would you describe? The politics of the Turkish Empire vis-à-vis Europe, and how does that uh, how does that affect the, the the European interest artistically in in the in this exotic Eastern uh, rival? So I would say two things about about that. Um, first, in terms of the Ottoman Empire's military. Um, circumstances with respect to Europe. I signal in the title um, that the book begins with the Siege of Vienna, and that's largely because I see that as a crucial turning point in the military relations of the Turks with Europe. That is to say, it's the um, as far as the Ottoman armies get in southeastern Europe, to the walls of Vienna. They do it twice, actually, once in 1526 and then again in 1683. Um, In both cases, they fail to conquer Vienna, but after the siege of Vienna in 1683, we see the beginning of the recession of the Ottoman Empire in Europe. That is to say, the European 
empires um, uh, succeeds in um, pushing the, the Ottoman army back out of Hungary in the wars of the 1680s. And what I would say is that for the really the first time it becomes clear that the Ottoman Empire is not advancing in Europe, the Ottoman Empire is not invincible in Europe, and while the Ottoman Empire is still a military force to be reckoned with, it's being reckoned with on a, a more more equal basis for the first time at the end of the 17th century. And it's possible for um, Europeans to think about the Ottoman Empire without the same kind of um, terror that they um, did before um, 1683. Furthermore, when I think about the world of the 18th century, um, what I'm looking at is a more neutral interest uh, across the um, Ottoman-European divide in the 18th century, a greater interest in the Ottoman Empire on the part of European observers, an interest that's not just hostile or military, but an interest in Ottoman culture and Ottoman values. And I see some of that coming the other way as well from the Ottoman Empire in the 18th century. Um, it's the century of um, Ahmed III and the um, beginnings of interest in European style. The um, By the end of the 18th century, the coming of Western advisors to the Ottoman Empire. By the end of the 18th century, you could even see the beginnings, the first intimations of what we think of as Ottoman reform um, coming still in the 19th century. And both for reasons of um, a military equilibrium and a mutual cultural interest, this is a period that is super interesting for thinking about this musical encounter on the operatic stage. Would, would you also say that the, the, the danger has passed in the opera-going audience members' mind? You write, for example, uh, in, in, in Mozart's abduction in 1782, abduction from the Serralio, that nobody remembers the sound of the dreaded Janissary bells outside the wall a hundred years ago. And when he does, it's almost a, a comic, comic surprise and, and done with comic effect. I wonder if this is the sort of thing where when the danger is here, it's not a laughing matter. And when it's far away enough in time and space, then it's sort of an object of a fascination. And to make a very primitive uh, analogy, is it could it be like the, the Wild West show of Buffalo Bill Cody, where the, there was nothing scarier than the Plains Indians until they were gone, and then they were an object of exotic fascination, like that, something like that? Um, I think that that's a fair comparison to make, that it's not possible to, um, you know, bring this kind of subject matter uh, or the kind of Ottoman instrumentation into European life and into European culture when they're um, objects of complete terror. That is to say, when you actually hear them as a threat outside of your own city walls. But I would say in counterpoint to that, that it's not possible to make them interesting within your culture, um, as they are in the case of these operas, um, if they're actually totally remote or completely contemptible. That is to say, it's about
to me here in the world of the in the world of the 18th century. The truth is that these Janissary instruments that come um, from the European experience, Ottoman armies, um, is uh, is something that emerges into European culture already pretty early in the 18th century. Nobody remembers the siege of Vienna in Mozart's time. Mozart's moment is the centennial moment for the siege of Vienna. Abduction from the Seraglio is performed in 1782, 99 years after the siege of Vienna in 1683. But those um, instrumentations that Mozart loves are already being used in European courts and European armies um, in the first half of the 18th century when Ottoman when Ottoman warfare is, is still a lively presence. And in fact, Mozart's Vienna goes to war with the Ottoman Empire in 1787. The Habsburgs are actually at war with the Ottoman Empire between 1787 and 1791. So this is not something that's completely a dead letter. Um, the possibility of going to war with the Ottoman Empire, the possibility of hearing those instruments, um, those Ottoman instruments on the battlefield still exists in Mozart's world in the, in the 1780s. You're just not likely to hear them outside the walls of Vienna. They've been removed to a greater distance. Um, by the by that moment, and that's one of the reasons why it's possible for Mozart to bring that instrumentation, that Janissary ins instrumentation, inside the walls of Vienna and put them on the stage of the Hofteater. Thank you. I and I I, I want to say this right away. Because I probably should have said it at the beginning. I find that the way to read this book is. Uh, is most possible now with the miracle of the internet because when you refer to something, I can bring it up on YouTube and listen to it. And if I want to hear the uh, the Janissary bells, there is a Turkish military museum in Istanbul that 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 has a, a performance of it. And if I want to hear abduction from the Seraglio, well, it's it's readily available and Haydn and Rossini and everything else. So that is my advice to our to our uh, audience today. Uh, is this something that that um, just te technically made it made it more easy for you to write about this. I, I appreciate that you know a literary historian is is a very, I would say, a brave thing for you to write about music. Is this something that uh, um, that you thought about? How how can I get people to to hear what I am talking about? Um, it's one of the things that's both a little bit frustrating about doing this kind this kind of work, but also very exciting and very promising. My sense is that. Um, all of music publishing is a little bit in a transitional stage right now in trying to figure out what the best possible way is to make use of YouTube, to make use of internet resources for hearing music while you are reading about it and writing about it. That is to say, the classic format for doing this is to place the musical staff on the page um, and reproduce it as a visual illustration. And I mean, that's, that's the staple of musicological writing, and it's something that I do a little bit of in the book. But of course, for um, a lot of readers, especially readers who are not musicologists and don't come from that particular fuck, um, it's much more helpful and more evocative to be able to listen to the music directly. What I ended up doing myself was um, buying the web address, singingturk.com, and setting up examples of the music on that page. I don't know whether you find whether you found that while you were reading the book, but there's actually a 
webpage, singingturk.com, where there are examples given for each of the chapters of the book in relation to the text of the book. And that's really cool and really interesting. And in other writing that I've done about music, I've begun experimenting with just putting web addresses into the text. And of course, that's easiest if, that's easiest if the publication is happening online rather than a publication in, in print. It's easy to create something that has links that will take you immediately to the music that um, you want people to have in their heads while they're reading. Totally agree. This is sort of one of the interesting things about work, about working on music. And I come to it, um, as you say, from outside the field. I'm not trained as a, as a, as a, as a musicologist, though I do read music and am very interested in music as a piece of cultural history. I, I think it's, I think it's wonderful. And I also think that it's 2018 now. So everybody is walking around with the internet in his pocket and can pull it out at any moment while they're reading, you know, in, in, under a tree in the middle of nowhere. That that will that is perfectly serviceable the way the way you've done it. Uh, and what when when you um, I, I I really appreciate how you you've just decided to start something new. And it, it sounds like it's a bit um, situational that you found yourself in uh, New York City. Now you go to the opera frequently. You remember you write in the um, in the in the beginning in the, uh, the acknowledgments that you remember driving across Europe in a. In a in a van with a with a with a farcical company, <laughs> in the spirit of opera buffa, and, and and so you have just always wanted to get around to the opera, and now you are, are in a place professionally where you have that luxury. Is do I understand that correctly? Um, I think I've been moving towards this book for a long time. Um, I think probably every academic feels that uh, you know each work is very over is largely overdetermined by different factors in his or her um, intellectual trajectory. But this one brings together a lot of things that have been important to me for a long time. Thinking about opera music and theater, thinking about issues of East and West, um, thinking about the Ottoman Empire and its relation to Europe, um, putting together the different European perspectives that are important in this book. The really important perspectives are Venice, Vienna, and Paris, which you'll find are perspectives that I've mined in, you know, different and deep ways over the course of my career. I'm 60 now. I've been writing books for a long time. As you said, there are um, six that you read out at the beginning. There's even a seventh, the dissertation book that um, that you might have missed on Poland and the Vatican in the 18th century. Um, but it's... Um, for me, this book brings together a lot of pieces of work that I've been doing for a long time. And for sure, being in New York, and which is such an opera capital, and by the way, that's much less true of Boston, where I lived for 25 years before I moved to New York. But New York is such an opera capital that it you know, puts opera on your mind in a different way. So uh, uh, that makes a lot of sense to me. I, I was a... a an undergraduate uh, in Vienna for a semester, and I—that's when I got the opera bug. And I just remember going across the street to the um, Cafe Mozart and having, a, a, drinking Cafe Sobieski, which was a coffee with vodka and honey in it. And I thought, this this Sobieski guy—he really, he really did something, right? So that that memory of that uh, siege lives today, even in the Copenhagen. There's a cafe 
say there's a coffee name for Sobieski. I didn't yes, know that. Yes, yes. Really just across the street from the Staatsoper in Vienna, you can have a Café Sobieski with vodka and honey, and you can have a, a, a Maria Teresa Café with something else equally interesting in it. I don't remember what. So that, that well, siege... Well, you know, the city were right there where the opera stands now. Yes, yes. And, and I've also read that, you know, because of that siege, we have coffee in, in the first place, or at least got it at the time and in the way that... that that we did, or maybe that's a myth. That's exactly right. It's the Turkish influence that brings coffee to Europe, and that's one of the points where it penetrates in Vienna in the period right after the siege. And I, I, I also find that in your book you make a you you, you make a careful point that this is not an exotic uh, sort of like a um, Orientalist uh, uh, simplification of what of what Ottoman culture is, but it it often is is sympathetic uh, and uh, and genuinely interested. Uh, interplay between cultures. One thing I was very interested in is the um, frequent masculinity, like the the, the low tones in which um, some of the uh, uh, Ottoman antagonists on the stage are, are are played, and 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 how often you 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 note that they are you know um, held up in comparison to to eunuchs or castrati. Let's say something about what how the how the oh and, and I'm sorry, and also how uh, originally an you know a a violent raging, angry Turk is slowly humanized by, by, by in his treatment um, and becomes a, a sympathetic, generous figure by the end of the story. Would you, would you talk about that and explain that, that uh, thesis in your work? So, um, there, there, are, there are a lot of pieces there to um, pick up on, Shishtof. I would um, start with the um, um, masculine Turk, I would even say hyper-masculine Turk in the operatic world of the, of the 18th century. Um, one of the things that's very striking to me is the vocal range of Turkish figures, um, which um, never touches the castrato um, voice, which is so super important otherwise in the 18th century. Um, the Turkish voice um, is always in the masculine range and over the course of the 18th century descends to the basso range and remains definitively in the basso range from the late 18th century to the very end of this phenomenon in the early 19th century. Um, Mozart has a specific basso who he works with for the abduction from the seraglio and is very interested in the, in his exploiting his deepest notes for the role of Osmin. And um, likewise, Rossini, who is the last exponent of the singing Turk on the European operatic stage, has a very particular basso whom he works with, Filippo Galli, who plays the Turk in every one of Rossini's major operas with a Turkish role. And it's Galli's very specific um, masculine basso range that Rossini is interested in um, exploiting and exploring. And um, it's the basso masculinity, which on the one hand provides some of the elements of the ways in which Turks are fearsome, and then at the same time um, becomes the point of exploration for the ways in which they are vulnerable, which is another way, a little bit about thinking of what, what you were suggesting, the ways in which they rage, and then the ways in which they are also um, humanized, or I would say the ways in which they are, um, on the one hand, exotic, and on the way, the, the other hand, the ways in which they are just like us, from Mozart's perspective or from Rossini's perspective. Um, the thrust of the work, um, the whole book, ultimately, um, is to argue that 
Turks are not fundamentally exotic as singing creatures on the European stage, that they sing to us because they resemble us and we recognize ourselves in them. And that Mozart, Mozart understands that and Rossini understands that and all the major exponents of this tradition understand that we find um, our the Turks recognizable and that we recognize ourselves in them, including their raging emotions. When Mozart... Mozart spends a lot of attention thinking about the raging emotions of Osmin, um, how to express that in music. He writes his longest, most detailed letter about operatic composition in 1781, about Osmin's emotions and how to express his rage musically. It's not because Mozart thinks that... Um, Turks are um, so much more emotionally violent than um, placid Mozart himself. It's because Mozart recognizes his own emotional rages in the figures of these singing Turks, in the figure of Osmin. Um, to, come, to come back just for a moment to the question of eunuchs and castrati, um, one of the things that I thought was fascinating about the way that composers from the beginning of the 18th century, when castrati are the rage in European opera, the way that composers avoid um, the castrato voice or Turkish roles, um, is suggestive to me of the fact that European composers are interested in keeping apart these two very important discussions in the 18th century. One is the glory of the castrato voice, and the other is the fascinating sociological, historical, literary role of the eunuch in the Ottoman Empire. And those two things are not allowed to touch each other on the operatic stage. That is to say, there'd be too much anatomical verisimilitude in having a castrato um, singing a role that could potentially be the role of a eunuch. And that would be the case for Osmin, the overseer in Mozart's abduction from the Seraglio. Osmin is the overseer of the harem in Mozart's scenario. The overseer of the harem would certainly have been a eunuch in the Ottoman world of the 18th century. Probably Mozart understands that. And he takes the vocal range of the role in exactly the opposite direction. He um, has Osmin singing in the lowest registers of the basso voice, um, as if to say very, very clearly, I am not a eunuch. And Mozart is someone of whom we could say some of his best friends are castrati, mm -hmm. are um, eunuchs in that regard. I mean, he's very familiar with the castrato voice. He knows guys who don't have testicles. They are among his friends. Um, and he's really careful to avoid that in, um, the, uh, in the abduction from the Seraglio and in, as well in the Turkish opera that um, precedes it, the unfinished opera Zaid. That, that, that is astounding. Why do you think that is? Is it a question of too much of one thing that would throw everything off balance, the, uh, almost too saccharine, uh, a, a castrato playing a eunuch? Is that what that is? Um, too anatomically um, precise. Um, it would be, it would um, make the, it would make the work anatomically and physiologically unsettling, I think. Not just for Mozart, but for audiences. The idea of, I mean, one has to preserve the idea that castrati pres um, express a certain romantic masculinity 
on the stage in the 18th century. Having them in eunuch roles is therefore unthinkable. And likewise, one has to preserve a sense of the masculinity of the Turk on the European stage. Having them performed by Castrati, it becomes likewise unthinkable. Um, they're just two pieces of the 18th century obsession, but do not overlap. The raging Turkey, the, the, the raging overseer of the harem, whom Mozart in some sense conjures in the abduction from the Seraglio, is someone we can see in 18th century literature in Montesquieu's Persian letters, um, the eunuchs of the Persian harem, who rage um, in something like the same way that Mozart's Osmin rages. But Mozart's Osmin is not allowed to be a, uh, to be a eunuch or a castrata. Is the castrato performer, is he representing some kind of some kind of purity, something angelic, something boyish. Is that is that why, or what is what is this masculinity of the castrato performer that you know? Obviously, we no longer have today, and so it's hard to imagine. We don't have it today, but in the early 18th century, he is the young romantic um, lead of the opera with a romantic masculinity all of his own, and a usefulness that is partly expressed by his unusual range, but um, I think there's a, a piece of paradoxical musical performance there that it's very hard for us to get inside, in which romantic masculinity in the early 18th century is expressed by the castrato voice, but not for Turkish characters. Very, very interesting. Uh, so let's return to the, the, the way uh, Mozart handles Os Osmin, and a wonderful point you make that that the Turks on the stage are a mirror to the audience member where you see yourself, maybe you're from outside back in, that you, this is you in your rage and this is you when you are um, mollified perhaps. Uh, two examples, one is I, is where you write about Osmin and Pedrillo, where they uh, where Pedrillo gets the the Turkish overseer to to drink wine, which uh, obviously is uh, problematic for uh, a Muslim in you know on duty, but also um, just a very normal thing. And they and they sing together, "Long live, long live Bacchus, vivat Bacchus, Bacchus lebe, Bacchus va, and brava man." And and the second one I want to ask you about is the is when the Turks fall in love with Christian women. The, the the Italian figure Lucrezia in in Carlo Goldoni's um, Lucrezia Romana in Constanton, Constantinopoli that that you write about and how that's not a taboo sub neither of those are a taboo subjects one getting getting drunk with a with a with a fellow human a Turk and two the Turk falling in love with the Christian woman on stage is not offensive in any way but gratifying to the audience. Mm, let me let me think about where to pick to pick up on that. I mean it's 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 a uh, a fascinating and weird phenomenon for us, the harem comedy of the, the harem musical comedy of the 18th century. Um, it's weird because it's based on the reality of Mediterranean captivity in the early modern centuries, 16th, 17th, 
18th century, um, there's a, a huge phenomenon of Mediterranean captivity. Um, people taken captive off of ships, um, European Christians taken captive by um, often um, pirates from North Africa, sold as slaves within the Ottoman Empire, and you see some of this happening in reverse. That is to say, um, Muslims being taken captive from Ottoman ships and becoming slaves in Christian Europe. Um, it's reciprocal, um, although probably the larger part of it involves European captives in the Ottoman Empire. Um, affects an enormous number of people in the 16th, 17th, and 18th century, and is a subject so ugly in itself um, that is to say it's about slavery and um, in some cases sexual slavery so ugly for us that it's really hard for us to connect it to the delightful comedies that are made on this subject in the 18th century um, from the beginning of the 18th century on forwards. And I would say about this that as with the case of the Siege of Vienna, these comedies um, begin to appear um, at the moment when this um, phenomenon of piracy and captivity begins to decline. Um, it's much more powerful and present in the 16th and 17th centuries than it is in the 18th century, when European powers are already making war against the pirates of North Africa. It actually culminates in an American war against the pirates of North Africa in the very early 19th century. Um, I think it's in during the Jefferson administration when the um, when um, American armed forces go to Tripoli. It's why Tripoli is in the Marines' fighting song to the shores of Tripoli. Um, this is why the Marines have a Mamluk sword yeah, to this day. There you go. Um, and um, because of that, right, it begins to be possible to think of these harem captivity subjects as comical subjects in the 18th century, first evolving in Paris at the beginning of the 18th century, and then spreading all over Central Europe by the middle of the 18th century. And Mozart's abduction from the Seraglio is a work in this genre. One of the things I want to say about the abduction from the Seraglio before, before, that I really should have mentioned earlier is that for me it was a little bit of a point of entry into this whole um, subject because it's the best known work on this subject. Once you actually begin prying at the subjects, however, you discover hundreds of operas on these subjects, most of which are completely lost to performance, have not been performed um, since the 18th century, um, exist only as scores, or in some cases as libretti um, only, and um, are waiting in European libraries and archives to be recovered and rediscovered. Part of what this book was about was trying to recover the extent of a forgotten repertory, of which Mozart's Abduction from the Seraglio is just the tip of the iceberg and the only important such work that is still performed today. Um, subject of European women in Ottoman harems. Um, it's something that Mozart is able to write about, I would say, almost romantically. The fate of the European woman who is adored by a pasha in an Ottoman harem, menaced by a pasha in an Ottoman harem, ultimately is able to um, be 
abducted, but also emancipate herself from the uh, tensions of the attentions of the Ottoman Pasha, which are not of no interest to her over the course of the opera. The um, climactic work in this genre, again, going to Rossini in the, in the beginning of the 19th century, is the work Il Turco in Italia, in which we take this subject outside of the Ottoman harem, and um, we bring a Turk to Italy, in Il Turco in Italia, who, a Turk to Italy who is not a military conqueror, um, as one might have imagined such a Turk a hundred years earlier, but a Turk who is coming as a romantic conqueror, who conquers all hearts, and for whom the um, Italian woman who is the leading lady of the opera falls in love with him immediately when she meets him. Um, by the beginning of the 19th century, by the time this phenomenon has played out, it's possible for an Italian woman and a Turkish man to be in love with each other on the operatic stage, even if the romance is never able to be fully realized, even if at the end of the opera they go their separate ways and return to their separate worlds. There's a great piece of music in Rossini's Il Turco in Italia, um, a, a little duet which you'll find on the website of, uh, at singingturk.com, in which the um, soprano sings, In Italia, certamente, non si fa l'amor così. In Italy, certainly, one does not make love like that. And the Turk replies, in Turkia, sicuramente non si fa l'amor così. In Turkey, certainly one does not make love like that. But Rossini composes the music for them in such a way as to make clear that they make love in exactly the same way. That is to say, they pick up on each other's ornamentations, they finish each other's musical phrases, um, they make love to each other in exactly the same way through the duet that Rossini composes for them. And the um, cultural convergence, which is implicit in this whole operatic tradition, um, achieves a kind of consummation, both a musical consummation, we could even say a sexual consummation in this 90-second um, you know, duet that the two of them sing about how they don't make love in the same way when they actually do. In Turkey, in Turkey, in Turkey, Where the, where the text is the opposite message of the of the music happening at the same time, and you you that is so cool. Yeah, that, that's a, that's amazing. And you you in your conclusion, you go from that making that point to saying that really this is a uh, a Mediterranean story transformed by the imperialism of the nineteenth century and the mass migration in the twentieth century. And I suppose we could say a few things about the twenty first century. Uh, and I, I wonder where you would. I know that we have about seven minutes left or so. I wonder if uh, where you would, what you would say about. I mean, for clearly in the First World War, Turkey behaved in, in the same way and resembled the same way as these European powers, obviously, 
belligerently and so on, but just even in the dress and in the in the reforms of Kamal Mustafa with the Latinization of the alphabet and the Western dress and all these things, just as in previous centuries, the Eastern Europeans especially would would do things the, the Turkish way. Uh, where where are we now, and what what's happening? I actually just spoke recently at a conference on the current crisis of Mediterranean migration. We are right now looking at a moment in which um, people are actually dying in small boats trying to cross the Mediterranean to move from the southern shores of the Mediterranean to the European Union on the northern shores of the Mediterranean. And one, I, I actually gave a paper in which I tried to use some of these operatic works to think about how much more intimate the Mediterranean seemed in the world of the 18th century, when it was divided into Muslim shores and Christian shores. But um, these operas suggest the possibility of an intimacy that people were aware of when they thought about the Mediterranean in the world of the 18th century. That is to say, someone like Mozart, who really barely knows the Mediterranean. Mozart's kind of an inland composer, right? Born in Salzburg, makes the height of the, you know, the most of his career in Vienna in the 1780s. When he goes, to, when he first sees the Mediterranean as a young man, he makes a sort of scatological joke about it in his letters. He refers to it as the Mediterranean, the shit Mediterranean. Um, but Mozart actually, in the abduction from the Seraglio, <clears throat> can imagine um, a Mediterranean meeting place between cultures in the same ways that in Cosi Pantute, he can imagine a world in which Italians and Ottoman Albanians not only encounter each other, but become each other over the course of the opera in the Mediterranean context. And this becomes even truer in Rossini's world. In a work like L'Italiana in Algeria, where you have an Italian girl going to Algiers, um, um, prospectively to become a part of the harem of the bay in Algiers, um, but in fact to conquer Algiers herself through her charismatic personality, to conquer the Turkish ruler who falls in love with her. Rossini's interested in massing musical forces from both sides of the Mediterranean. He has choruses of Italians and choruses of Algerians um, singing in counterpoint to one another as they meet on this Algerian shore, as they separate in the finale of the opera. You can see in the, in the directions that are made, both in the libretto and the score, the way that Mozart, that not Mozart, Rossini, um, who is using choral forces to express the different presences on the Mediterranean shore, the kind of conflicts that they come into, and at the same time, the ways in which they harmonize and the ways in which they are able to encounter one another on the Mediterranean. The romance of the sea, much clearer in the world of Rossini than in the world of Mozart. Rossini, of course, comes from the sea. He comes from Pesaro on the Adriatic, and the Mediterranean presence in his operas is much more powerful, and we can feel this encounter in a very moving way in his um, 
early 19th century works. One of the things that I thought was really fascinating, last summer I lectured at the Rossini Pesaro Festival um, about the work that they were presenting, Le Siege de Corinth, um, the Siege of Corinth, which is um, Rossini's opera about um, Mehmet II and his conquest of Greece following the conquest of Istanbul in the 15th century. And it was being performed in Pesaro um, basically at the Barcelona moment, the moment of the Barcelona massacre last summer, you probably remember this, um, which was the headline of every Italian newspaper as it was in you know every newspaper all over the world. And it was very striking, the contrast between the moment in our you know current um, European Islamic encounter and the ways in which Rossini imagined um, a Muslim conqueror um, in the European world in the early 19th century and the sympathy and interest that Rossini brings to bear on a subject that um, we might have imagined would have been too fearful for him to touch um, the subject of a Muslim conqueror in Europe, um, even as remote as the 15th century, but to put on the stage in the early 19th century. The intimacy with, with which Rossini takes on the subject and recognizes his own Europe in the phenomenon of the Muslim conqueror in Europe. Recognizes his own Europe because, of course, the universal conqueror whom he depicts in the figure of Mehmet II is clearly recognizable as the great conqueror of Rossini's own lifetime, that is to say, Napoleon, um, who, um, and when one celebrates when one makes charismatic the phenomenon of universal conquest on the operatic stage. That's what Rossini is still mulling over in the 1820s, the Napoleonic moment, and what the figure of the supreme conqueror means for Europeans. So many, so many good points and so many more questions, but I think we have to leave it there. And so I cannot thank you enough for your for your time and your thoughts and your comments and this and this absolutely delightful book. And so I will I'll bid you good morning and I'll go check out that website and remind us what it is again. Thank you so much.